Welcome to episode 50 of the Digital Fabrication Experiment, a podcast about all things CNC. I'm Winston Moy, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Eddie Kramer and Chris Lee. We're hobby machinists, and we'd like to bring you into our conversations about life in the shop and topics in making. Gentlemen, how are you feeling? This is the big 5-0. I'm doing great. I'm hossing a good time right now. <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't believe we made it to 50. It's... Uh... It's crazy, but um, yeah, had a really good couple of weeks since we last talked. Been very busy in the shop, and um, speaking of this being the 50th episode, we actually have a very special guest tonight. We have Ed Dries from Saunders Machine Works with us tonight. How are you doing, Ed? Hey, I'm doing great. Uh, great to finally be here, and uh, happy to have it be the 50th episode <laughs> that I make my appearance on. <laughs> we saved it just for you. Right? Yes, thank you. <laughs> so, um, how long have you been at Saunders Machine Works? Ooh, coming up on three years now. It was uh, June, yeah, I think, I think June of 2017 is when I started. Yeah, are you are you local uh, to Zanesville, or how'd you how'd you end up getting connected with John? Yeah, it's a bit of a funny story. Um, I am local, live around five minutes away from the shop in Zanesville, uh, but I was watching uh, NYC CNC, thinking it was in New York, as so many people do, thinking he was still in New York, and then I just somehow spotted the address. Zanesville, Ohio. Didn't realize he was right down the road. Um, wow. Yeah. Then uh, I was working in the makerspace at the local college, and John put some feelers out looking for potential interns through them, and that's how I really got connected with the job and started working there that way. Okay. So when you first started there, like I'm trying to remember three years ago, what was kind of the state of the shop? What machines were there? Yeah, I guess he had the VM3 by then, right? The, yeah, the VM3. And then some Tormox, uh, uh, all there were. It's, it's grown a lot quickly, and is uh, later this week we'll be getting a couple more enormous additions. So things are pretty crazy. Yeah, I think you've got uh, VF sixes coming yeah. in. Too, uh, coming yeah, in. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the biggest <laughs> biggest batch we've had yet by far. Yeah, that's crazy. Uh, Going to need a bigger door. <laughs> <laughs> Already got that taken care of. <laughs> <laughs> so I know I. I'm assuming those are mostly for production for the, the fixture, bigger fixture plates. Yeah. I think John mentioned that in his post. So I know uh, at Saunders, you're, you kind of do, I see you doing all kinds of stuff. You're in a lot of the videos, uh, the NYCC and videos. And um, I don't know if you guys are still doing the Fusion, uh, I can't remember what it's called. I want to say Fusion. Uh, Fusion Friday. Fusion Friday. Yeah, that, yeah. that hasn't been around for a while now. We still do a lot, a lot of fusion-related content, uh, but we don't have a specific fusion weekly video anymore. Okay, you've been working on Johnny Five. How's that going? Yeah, Johnny Five. Uh, we have another unboxing video coming soon from the collaborator parts, which thank all of you guys for uh, being a part of that. Um, I think part four is coming out soon with some exciting stuff. And I think by that point, I will finally have enough other stuff caught up that I can start putting him together, which I've been looking forward to for quite a while now. I've had a, a lot of uh, unexpected delays in that project, but uh, he, he's starting to shape up. Yeah, that, that was a super fun uh, project to be a part of. And I just happened to be there um, at Saunders' shop for a class late last year and got to see some of the parts that had come mm -hmm. in, um, that Hermley part. It's amazing. Yeah. Of course, the Marv Grow Kern, <laughs> that <laughs> crazy. Uh, six, I can't, I'm not really sure what that was for. This, the, um, it's like six sided 
joint of he has sort. a little johnny five has a little utility tool arm that pops out and that is the base that the tools flip out from it's actually pretty similar ah, pretty similar okay. to a cnc tool changer it's a geneva mechanism in there so that that whole assembly is pretty near and dear to my heart can't wait to put that together yeah very cool and um so i know you're you know you've got pretty full day at Saunders every day of the week, but uh, you've got a lot going on kind of in your home shop yeah. too. You, you've been working on that. Um, I've been watching kind of slowly come together uh, kind of big surface plate based router, the uh, junkyard Daytron. Yes. How's that going? Uh, it's really close to almost kind of finished as I sit here and look at it now. Like the main thing on my plate at this point is just getting some chip guards and things like that. So I'll feel comfortable running it without making a total mess of the rails and screws, but um, it's up and running usable. And I'm really happy with it for what it is. Is that your first machine build? No, I think it's my third. I was uh, okay for, we'll talk about the guitar thing a little later, but when I was 17 or 18, I decided that I needed a CNC machine if I was going to continue making guitars because making them by hand is just not super what I'm into. So uh, I built a, I think Soul Silva was the company that sold plans. You just buy like a booklet with a few different designs. And this, they recommended a two by four frame, but I already was interested in taking things to the next level and built it all out of oak, like laminated oak beams. Um, it did okay. Is it, it was, like a router style? Yes, yes. It was a, a, a two foot by four foot travel gantry router. But it had like a yeah. black iron pipe for the rails and stuff. I didn't know uh, any better at that point. <laughs> I, think we have a, I think we have a picture of that we can throw up if if uh, if that's an option. It's a, There's that be yes, absolutely. Um, they were they were straightish, right? Oh yeah, no. <laughs> was that kind of your gateway into CNC? Was the need for uh, to assist in the guitar making? Yes, absolutely. Um, I. Th- I think the first time I saw a CNC machine or learned about them was on American Chopper. They had, I think, some Haas machines. Uh, so I knew that that was out there um, in the metalworking world. And then when I realized it could be applied to woodworking, um, yeah, it was just absolutely something I had to have and had to learn how to run and could not afford to buy one. Still mm, could, but choose not to. <laughs> um, so, yeah, DIY was the way I went. So where'd you get the um, that huge surface plate? Oh, geez, for the there's a couple re there's a couple really nice uh, industrial surplus places a few hours north of me in Ohio here. Uh, so uh, I can't decide whether it's a gift or a curse to have those that close. But, but um, <laughs> yeah, I, I see your posts where you kind of come back from uh, like, uh, CNC junkyard shopping. Oh, man. It's always interesting yeah, I've, to see I've, what you come I've home with. I've gotten some crazy killer deals, like a set of uh, Highland Rails new in the box for 20 bucks. That just, <laughs> yes, I'll take that. I don't know what I'm going to use it for, but <laughs> a bit of an industrial hoarder situation going on here I need to come to terms with. <laughs> Excellent. So, um, yeah, let's talk a little more about the guitars. So was that kind of your first, um, I guess, maker passion? Yeah. Um, get into that? I mean, all, all growing up, it was a pretty standard story of someone who just always liked tinkering and tearing stuff apart and making things. Um, then when I came to the point where I decided I wanted expensive guitars that I couldn't afford, I also made those myself, just starting off out of two by fours and progressively working closer and closer to accurate original copies of generally like 50s and 60s holy grail guitars that are insanely expensive um 
Yeah, less pause. Yeah. And, yeah, stuff like that. I really like um, trying to replicate impossible, unobtainable. And I know. Yeah. Are you doing mostly acoustic or electric mm. or whatever? Just you're in the mood um, for, for it. I, I've only built a couple acoustic instruments. Um, a lot of people are surprised to hear that those are more difficult than an electric guitar. Uh, but really, for an electric guitar, you can take a two by four and throw some strings and pickups on it, and it'll sound. Eh, most people wouldn't be able to tell the difference between that and a Les Paul. But an acoustic has to sound good on its own. It has to be thin, thin enough to resonate well, but not so thin that it explodes under the pressure of the tension of the strings. So um, I primarily stick to solid body electrics, and I also do a lot of semi semi hollow electric guitars. And how did you get into that? Like, what was the thing that you know? Did you know somebody, or did you just one day wake up and be like, "I'm going to make guitars"? I, yeah, I, I think I just saw a weird 1960s Rickenbacker guitar that I wanted and they were like three or $4,000. So at, <laughs> yeah. at 15, I'm just going to make it out of two by fours. And uh, it, it looked, it looked all right. And then the next one was just a little bit better and just, just kept on making them slightly and slightly better. Just kept on making them. Well, I figured, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh uh, yeah. I just kept on getting a little bit better each time with them and until they ended up being sellable to other people. <laughs> yeah, that was good. That was that was my next question. Are you, are you selling? It's not, I know the one I'm trying to remember, um, like your current project you just finished up. Um, uh, what was it? It was, uh, the, uh, it was small. The arch, the arch <laughs> ukulele, little jazz ukulele. Yes. Yeah. Ukulele. Thank yes. you. That's the word. And that, that was for a commission. Mm -hmm. Is that, yep, that was um, to match, uh, okay. I think when I was 18 or so, I built that guy, a, uh, it was acoustic. One of the few acoustic guitars I've done a full size arch jazz guitar that looked the same. And then, few years ago, we got to talking again. And uh, I, I think it came about just because on my CNC router previous to the Junkyard Daytron, it was, it was just a little aluminum two by two router I built. I did a, a small scale test of a top carve and um, got to looking at it. And we decided it'd be fun to have an actual instrument that was this size. So we decided just to make a, a ukulele that matches it for him. Yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, just to finish oh. all the hours watching, you, <laughs> he must have put into too, that. Too many, <laughs> far too many, but yeah, it, it was fun. So slight tangent to all of this. Um, mm -hmm. I'm assuming you must have had some kind of musical inspiration. Like, I'm curious, uh, you're into guitars. Like, so what does a guy like you enjoy listening to? Oh, I, yeah, I less lately, but at the time when I first started, I was into a lot of 60s and 70s rock, like Led Zeppelin and the Beatles, Pink Floyd, fairly uh, basic dad rock, you might call it. Um, <laughs> so the classics. Still listen, to, still listen to a lot of that, yeah. Uh, and and those guys all had the the Holy Grail guitars that everyone loves. And that, they're yeah. a lot of the reason why a lot of people like these guitars too. So um, yeah, I, th I think the Rickenbacker bass, I wanted one like Paul McCartney had sort of late 60s psychedelic paint job on it that's the, the one that started it <laughs> so you have another little uh hobby don't you Ed? what's with the chickens oh yeah <laughs> yeah that's um <laughs> everyone wants to know <laughs> i'm never afraid of taking on well, any project but especially just like home improvement related stuff like that with basic carpentry um i think my girlfriend and her mom decided to pick up some chickens and uh, some other, I think there's a turkey and a couple ducks in the mix too, just for a little bit of uh, self-sufficiency. At the time, wasn't sure how bad the, the whole COVID thing was going to get. So I think they wanted to have a, a fallback plan on some eggs and chicken meat if things got to that point. 
Yeah. Totally understandable. <laughs> yeah. And I should mention probably for folks that um, haven't been out to the, or familiar with that area. So Zanesville, Ohio, where uh, Saunders Machine Works is and where Ed lives is, you guys are pretty rural. It's kind of a, I'd call that a farm community. Yeah, yeah, for the most part. Uh, like an hour, <laughs> yeah, about an hour east of uh, Columbus, right? Yeah. So, Oh, right. Yeah, and that'd be, yeah, that would be the the nearest large city. So yeah, pretty pretty rural. Yeah, so it's not not all that crazy to have chickens and ducks. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So um, let's talk a little bit more about uh, machines at Saunders. So I, you guys have a Dayton Neo that you guys I think acquired, or at least are, it's on loan for uh, Proven Cut. So, but you've had some. A chance to spend some time on that machine. What are your thoughts on the Neo so far? Oh, uh, I think it's safe to call it my favorite machine we have to run. If if I can <laughs> run it on there, I will. Uh, it's, it's just so nice to throw something down on the vacuum table, go to town. Uh, it, it makes it real easy to hit tolerances on flat stuff, I've found. I mean, no effort at all to hold two-tenths in thickness and flatness parallelism on plate work, which is you know a lot of what we do at this point plate work so i'm handling a lot of first stop on smaller stuff with that machine just working out amazing i um like one of the things i, I i'm in concurrence with your assessment there. <laughs> i love yes. the back and work holding on the neo and like I, I was just uh emailing one of my contacts at uh daytron hey dan about basically i had a by the time i'm done with the current parts i'm making in batch on plate like my plate it covers half the table and it's like full of holes <laughs> and it's still holding like point point eight bar of vacuum, right? Oh, it's just it's, it's, crazy. it's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> witchcraft. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, hopefully, you guys will get to hang on to that machine. That's that's <laughs> what I'm hoping too. Yeah, I, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised yeah. if that happens. Uh, it would be. Yeah, I'm hoping it's. Yeah, because you guys, it's probably the fastest spindle in the shop, right? Uh, by, I'm trying to think of it. Other than our pocket NC V250, um, yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Forgot you had that. Has that been showing up on, uh, you guys haven't shown much of that Not yet. yet. Right? I haven't had as much of a chance to do that as I'd like to. I'm trying, still having a little bit of technical difficulties getting it up and running on Ethernet, but I think Q has me just about sorted oh, okay. out with that. Yeah, I, I'm really excited to get running that machine, just something five axis. Yeah, that spindle suite in your um, the Daytron tooling, the single flute, uh, the stuff like the three millimeter shank, mm -hmm. and even the four millimeter, which you probably don't have any of that on hand, but um, the three millimeter stuff works really well on there. Sweet on the yeah the V two fifty. Oh yeah, I was going to ask you about the eleven hundred MX when I was out there late last year. I think it was fairly new. You guys hadn't. It probably just unboxed it. Yeah. So. But you spent some time with it, right? The Tormach? Oh, I've ran it. I haven't ran it as much as I ran the beta machine, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's great. The, the I love the control, the new, more professional style control layout. It's great on it. Uh, extended wide travel, BT30 tooling. I know they had some trouble. Uh, I don't want to say they had trouble, but um, the, the TTS... What am I saying? The TTS tool changers were seemed a lot more finicky to keep aligned, but the the BT thirty one just runs. Yeah, that makes sense because I mean that's a much more. I guess the, the whatever problems are going on with BT thirty in the world have long since been yeah, solved, right? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, so I was so that machine 
probably the one I saw. That's uh, that's like a production one. It's not, I, kn- I know you guys had kind of a one off for a long time because you were helping them out with the, the testing right. during development. But uh, yeah, you guys have a like, but somebody who ordered one today would probably get. Yeah, I think it's uh, serial number eight. Uh, but yeah, it is. It is a full production version. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the servos and everything. That's sweet. Yeah, that I like the control. Mm-hmm. I, I uh, took a picture of it when I was here and posted it, and um, got. I probably got of all the pictures I posted from Saunders. That one generated the most <laughs> questions. Like everyone wanted to know about the new control. And I'm assuming it's really just Pathpilot. It's just they did a good job of integrating the the touch screen. Yes. Yeah. I mean, there, there's and, not uh, not a huge difference in, or there, really, there's no difference. It's it's running the current Pathpilot right now, but. Um, they keep making excellent updates to Pathpilot, just little user usability. Yeah, it's probably one of my favorite. I, I've actually just seen it, never actually run a Tormach, mm-hmm. but um, like for that class of machine, that's that's a really nice control. Um, yeah, for a new user, it's it's super easy to just walk up to it and show them a couple things, and they're off and running. And you probably have that same experience with the Neo, right? You like Next. <laughs> Very much so. Yes, uh, I, I, <laughs> yeah, everything. Yes. Everything I'll say good. Everything good that I'll say about Pathpilot. It's even better on the, <laughs> the next control as far as yeah. ease of use. But um, all the camera is is just my favorite thing in the world. So when I first started using the machine, I that's I did that kind of the standard use the camera, set up your work holding WCS and go. But um, like the last couple of weeks, I've been working on a a big commercial job. And actually, my first big job on the Neo, and it's kind of been pushing me to learn like some of the other more advanced probing routines that are in uh, Next. Mm-hmm. So I've been playing around with. Uh, I, I got two things under my belt this week that I'm really happy about. One is um, it's uh, like I'm doing a bunch of parts in a 19 and a half inch by eight inch plate. So it's basically half table plate mm-hmm. and half inch aluminum plate, uh, 12 parts like pretty much uses up the whole plate and it's a two-sided job. So I have to accurately locate it after I probe it and I'm trying to like be efficient about it. So originally I was like probing the four edges of the stock, but it's basically saw cut stock that I didn't really want to spend the time to kind of prep the reference edges. So now I basically just machining a couple of uh, bores on like, the left and right corner and using uh, next has a two hole center probing routine where you can basically probe both holes, pick up the, uh, it sets your WCS to like one of the holes, but it measures the rotation and Z and every, like you can basically slap the plate on there. And then when you flip it also get it aligned or like if you shut down and want to finish it the next day, it's like super easy to pick up the uh, location. Like for me, that's kind of new. That's probably, you know, you could probably do that on a Haas and anything else, but but uh, I'll, like that was eye opening for me. I'll tell you, it's and not as the it's other not, really. Uh, go ahead. Oh yeah, um, that that is actually that's the only other um, it, the only advanced probing routine that I've used. Also, is the using uh, two bores for coordinate using two bores for coordinate rotation like that. Yeah, um, not as easy to do on the Haas, no, nowhere near, but um, it is doable on other controls. Yeah. And then the other thing um, similar to that is uh, like I have some pretty tight tolerances on a couple of the bore or actually one bore on the, these parts. Um, it's like plus zero minus two tenths. <laughs> so, uh, um, yeah, and I actually don't have that go no good uh, plug gauge here. So it's on order from from <laughs> Master Carp. But in the meantime, it's like I got to measure this holes. So uh, 
I basically kind of dug into the probing and there's, um, basically, you know, you can probe with, uh, that same routine, the center hole one is just kind of a side effect. It gives you the whole diameter mm-hmm. after it probes. So I've been kind of doing that in process probing. It's not integrated with fusion. Like so I think the Haas is, um, as of today, like Datron still not integrated, but it's so fast to just kind of do it in the control, like using jog basically over the first hole and probe. And then just, I know the offset for all the rest of it, So it's really easy to kind of get over the hole and probe it. Um, and I'll probably just add a manual NC to do it like as part of the cam process just save the data to a file on the control and pull it back when I'm done. Um, yeah, if I get real fancy, I'll actually compensate and yes, fix the hole if I can. Yes. Yeah. That, that, that's <laughs> but, something else. Yeah. The holding yeah. two tenths on a bore is, is another thing that took me a while to figure out how to do on, on the Datron because of the, uh, there is some interesting variability in the run out or, you know, the actual cutting diameter between tool changes. So that, that causes, have you noticed that? I've seen it more in C a little bit like, hmm. and I'm pretty sure that's just like, I think I get chips on, you know, like if yeah. there's any, anything on the, yeah. And I have, I have like a tool wear detection turned on. It's pretty sensitive the way I have it set. So, um, I run into that more often than I actually haven't done enough checking to see, although I've done two complete batches since I got the probing going and very consistent, like assuming the you know, I know it's not the best thing to measure, you know, use the machine, um, or using the, the machine you're measuring with to be measuring its right. own results. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's not the best setup, but, but, uh, but I am, you know, it's consistent. Yeah. For checking, for checking a bore like that, probably okay. And, and I found yeah. the checking the diameter with the probe as you're doing seems to be accurate to the 10th to our other measuring devices. So. If, so you're talking about run out at the tool. You're seeing variability. Yeah, and I think kind of that's from, something that Dan mentioned uh, during the training was that it can be I think up to five tenths, but he said more typically a tenth between tool changes, just for various reasons. There can be a slight difference in your effective cutting diameter, so it makes it it can make it hard to to hold a tight bore. Um, but um, just been dialing that process in lately. Uh, actually learned a good trick from one of Stefan Gottswinter's latest videos. He was showing how to turn precise diameters on a lathe uh, just by leaving, say, 20 thou stock and then taking a 10 thou pass that's going to be identical to your finishing pass, measuring that, and then taking the final 10 thou with a little bit of adjustment based on that first uh, semi-roughing pass. Just uh, They call it balanced finish passes or balanced roughing passes just uh, you're able to replicate every every bit of the cutting condition down to tool wear and deflection in the current setup and yeah. compensate for that uh just i had known about that for a while but only recently put it together to do the same thing on a you know interpolating a bore on a mill yeah exactly i may have to hit you up for that if i run into problems oh with yeah it's it, it, um <laughs> i think i got you um I think I understand it. Just you're basically running the same op, finishing up twice yes. with a little bit, a yeah, little bit wider. Are you are you having to take like repeat passes and whisper cuts to to hit that two tenths? So I basically did some testing until I got where I needed it to be. So it was actually like when I just used the geometry and told you know basically did the bore op. Uh, it was coming in under um, and consistently under. You know okay. even after tool changes, di- different days, it was pretty consistently under. Um, 
I don't have a way of measuring the tool diameter to see if I'm, if it's, you know, as if it's at nominal diameter. Um, and the tool was not brand new, but uh, it'd be interesting to see once I replace that tool, when it gets worn enough to need a new one, if I all of a sudden get blown out. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know yeah. Yeah, I expect to be. Um, but yeah, I didn't actually think about the variability between tool changes. I'll have to kind of keep an eye on that. It makes sense, especially with the kind of, you know, with the adapter on the yeah. collet and everything. It's something it's that like I... tool holder, right? Yeah, I fought that for quite a while uh, trying to do. I think I was working on the uh, the alignment pin. Uh, on Pearson pallets, they have two alignment pins with a sort of a drill bushing sleeve in them. And, and the, uh, the bore that that sleeve goes into is, I think... Uh, two-tenth tolerance so you want that to be good and tight and uh, i was having a lot of trouble having to try to sneak up on it until i switched to doing the you know leave 10 thou measure it and bump it out from there and just just hit it dead on with a full width pass yeah what kind of a what are the diameters you're working with um so this critical one is basically five sixteenths just under five sixteenths it's a press yeah press fit for a five sixteenths pin if i had to i know it's press fit i'm assuming it's a and I know it's a pin. <laughs> I'm assuming it's five six five sixteen space on the whole size. But um, yeah, that's really the only critical, like really critical dimension. Everything else on these parts, these are um, I've been talking about them on the on my Instagram page. I think in the last episode too, the sewing. Basically, they're textile uh, material guides for sewing face masks. And um, press fit pin is probably the most critical dimension because that's what holds it to the my understanding is that's that's how it attaches to the sewing machine like that's the only attachment and just a press fit no no some, uh, no threaded fastener or? i well threaded there's a bunch of threaded oh, fasteners okay. on it um because it's actually two pieces so it kind of bolts together and there's some alignment um reference geometry to kind of align the two pieces the upper and lower or the top and bottom part of the guide but i think uh, and then i see a couple of other holes on the side that would probably face the sewing machine but um yeah, I'm not really sure. Hopefully, I'll be getting a video of it in action pretty soon oh, for nice. the client, and then yeah, I might all my questions might be answered. Soon. Sweet, yeah. <laughs> hopefully, uh, hopefully, yeah. You'll be able to post that because I'd like to see I'd like to see those in action too. I've yeah, seen he, them around the, the you and uh, Adam working on them. Yeah, I'm not sure I, if I can post like like I haven't posted any finished parts yet. Just to, I don't think the client would be comfortable oh, sure. with that. Okay. Um, yeah, but work, but maybe they will. <laughs> so I don't know if they're on social media, but um, yeah, I'm hoping they'll. Because I, I think they're doing, they're like using, it's a community thing. Um, it's like I think they're engaging some of the the churches around the area. This is also in Ohio, clients in Ohio. Um, but they're trying to, you know, they're trying to get a uh, kind of a distributed sewing production thing going to get this mini mask out as possible mm-hmm. as quickly as possible so yeah cool maybe some of that will end up on somebody's social media i hope so <laughs> but yeah I, I mean the neo itself has been working like a dog for the last probably 10 days every day i've been making uh production parts shipping them out at the end of the day um and it's been rock solid you know the, nice all the problems i've run into so far are, are my lack of experience <laughs> right yes yeah same. <laughs> and this was a pretty big project for me to do, you know, it's my first big one on the Neo, but um, it's, I'm, I'm basically growing so much faster than I would have otherwise was kind of doing the hobby stuff. Oh yeah. Just, just um, that would, yeah. I was planning on waiting like a couple more months before I took on a big job, but it's like, I kind of felt like I plateaued. I needed something to push me and this was perfect. So uh, yeah. Thanks again, Adam for uh, Adam 
the machinist for referring this work to me. It's been really good. I think that's always the best way to kind of learn is take on a really difficult, complex project for any new machine. And then once you figure it out, everything else is kind yeah, of It's kind of funny because, I mean, it didn't start out big. It was like originally, I think they wanted 30 parts, like 30, well, 60 really, like 30 tops and 30 bottoms and pretty reasonable timeline. And then, you know, it's basically work got quoted, work got accepted. <laughs> and it was like, well, we really need a hundred part. Well, actually we need 200 parts. We might need a thousand. <laughs> so, like, yeah. So it's been, uh, yeah, just kind of scrambling to catch up. But so when they do that, are you requoting at every um, change? Fortunately, I didn't have to, right? So normally like if the quantity goes up, your unit price goes down, right? Cause it get cheaper, but um, they're basically mm-hmm. paying my 30 unit price for 200 units. Now where, okay. This is where like lessons learned for me. Um, so the original, like originally I quoted, there was just a solid model, no drawings. Um, Cause they're basically were ramping up as like at the same time I was, this is like, you know, mm-hmm. I guess big new work for them too. And, um, and things were pretty fluid. Like geometry was changing for the first week or so. Um, so I went through, you know, basically had to reprogram the part a second time because changes to the model. And then, um, then the tight tolerance came in, <laughs> right? Normally I would have like, as soon as I started hearing aerospace <laughs> tolerances, I probably would have normally said, you know, we're going to have to read, you know, rediscuss this quote. It's, uh, originally it was quoted. I think the tightest tolerance was how, you know, which is fine, but that, oh, that's actually really tight. Like everything I've noticed at work from all the aerospace companies that we work with, I'm usually like 10 thou on a three decimal place and then 30,000 a 10, which to me is like, you know, like <laughs> yeah. how could I not hit that? You know, like that, that's so big. Um, I have a related story for that. So apparently some of the guys at our office quoted this part that looked flat on paper. And I guess they didn't take the time to like check the 3d model. And we ended up signing a three-year contract with them. And then when it got to our department, I opened up the file and I looked and I'm like, whoa, this is not, this is not a 2D part. This is like 3D contouring on both sides. We way <laughs> underquoted this. There's no way that we're going to be able to hit this in like an hour. It's going to take like three hours to service finish such a big plate. And then, uh, yeah, like basically we got tricked and the guys didn't check it out and like, and see what was going on. And I guess they should have noticed something was up when the customer's like, Oh yeah, let's sign a three year <laughs> contract right now. As opposed to like, usually it takes a lot longer to get the contract in, but they had that thing <laughs> faxed in before they could, you know, go to yeah. the bathroom. So, um, it was, a, I, it was not my fault or anything, but it was just, it was a learning experience for everybody. Right. Like you should open the 3d model and take a gander. Like you should not just assume something. And I, I can understand why they got tricked because I was looking at the 2d and, it can look deceiving, you know, cause it's a 2d print. It has callouts and things like that, but, um, it wasn't until you open it up yeah. and you actually see it. So we are stuck in that three year contract for good. There was nothing like that going on. Um, with my client, like it was just, yeah, it was just, yeah, yeah. uh, I had the option, right? I could have waited till they had the drawing ready and then quoted, but, um, you know, I had the solid model. I was pretty comfortable with what I saw. And even today, like the parts I'm making are close enough to that, that I'm pretty comfortable with my quote. Um, I probably underquoted just in general, you know what I'm saying? Cause I'm still like the amount of, like I hadn't mm-hmm. ever done a job this big, obviously couldn't do something like this on the hobby machine. So yeah. there's so many more factors like that I will use next time yeah, I quote I mean, <laughs> something like it, this, but 
Yeah. I mean, this is your first quoted child. You know, it's, it's sometimes I feel like it's okay to quote a little lower in the beginning because you're, you're still learning. Yeah. There's still a lot of things to do, you know, as long as you're not under exactly. where you're losing money exactly. terribly yeah. or anything like that. Yeah. There's still yeah. stuff and to gain. clients willing to accommodate, you know, my little learning curve, you know, the little adjustments I make along the way and get better. Um, then even, you know, it works out for both of us, I think. So, um, yeah, I hope, you know, I hope yeah. this leads to a good relationship and maybe future stuff. I think most of what these guys need, I can't do here. It's probably, you know, Adam, I think serves most of their kind of specialty machining needs since usually steel or carbide. Right? <laughs> yeah. Machining. Oh, machining carbide. <laughs> yeah. <is> just... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But if they ever, you know, find themselves needing some aluminum bits again, maybe I'll, uh, They'll remember me. We'll see. I think you need to dream a little bigger and uh, plan on getting a Kern in your garage. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, Ed, yes. I'm actually super curious as to how you came about the like the design implementation. Like, how did you choose the Junkyard Daytron des- like format? Like, is it because you just found the surface plate and it kind of built from there? Did you already have that in mind? And like the things that you chose along the way to get to where you are now, like machine decisions is kind of what I'm curious about. Like, how did you pick them or how did that come a about? A lot of them I, I would not do again at this point. I'm locked into them having just now, but I've, <laughs> I've learned a lot just through building it and just learning in the intervening two years or whatever since I've started it. But um uh, some of my early machines, I had a lot of trouble with parallelism between the two, or I'd say coplanar, the two rails, the two long axis rails, getting them coplanar was hard, uh, getting them straight was hard, uh, and then just not having a lot of mass or rigidity to the bases of the machines caused issues. Um, and then I think it, pr- it probably was a Daytron machine I saw years ago with a granite base. And I was like, that's, that's the ticket right there. So yeah. I had been keeping an eye out for a, a plate about this size that was just clapped out. You know, I think it's, it's within a couple thou at this point, but for, for a mill base, that's, that's plenty good. Yes. <laughs> Especially for woodworking, which is mostly what this thing is going to be doing. Um, then Similar story on the the lathe bed gantry, which a lot of some people might not know that the the gantry of this machine is a 1928 South Bend lathe bed. Uh, yeah, I remember that. That's going to be pretty rigid. <laughs> yeah, our original plans were for some kind of epoxy granite deal, but then I realized that the the lathe I was rebuilding was probably a bit clapped out beyond repair. So I uh, figured that might might as well go all out. Just make a stupidly rigid heavy dense slow router i'm going for good wood finishes here <laughs> so um you got you you did splurge on the spindle for that machine right that looked like a pretty sweet yes yeah and and I, i'm really happy i went with that um it's the uh, cnc depot s30 spindle it's a iso 30 uh quick uh, has Automatic tool change capability, power draw bar kind of deal. Um, 18K, three horse. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's a little, little more than the Neo as far as uh, kilowatts horsepower. A little less RPM. Well, quite a yeah, bit less RPM. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think they do have a yeah, sure. 22 or 24K version with uh, ceramic bearings, and they have some, I think, higher horsepower models in the works too. But it sounds like you got that, that is a good setup for wood. Can't go too fast unless you want to, like, make smoke. Yeah, it doesn't have a lot of. 
<laughs> doesn't have a lot of low RPM uh, torque, unfortunately, for met for metalworking. Tried facing some steel with it. It didn't like that too much. But uh, <laughs> just with, make the right tooling decisions. Maybe a single flute, a single point kind of uh, fly cutter sort of deal can handle some steel with it. So uh, given everything you know now, what would be your uh, dream machine architecture for uh, next time? Because mm. we all know there will be a follow-on. Uh, if I the one I've really been dancing around is a five axis next, but um, we'll talk about that. The baby at a different, at a different time. <laughs> the the, the Pee Wee Herma. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. uh, as far as a, <laughs> as far as a router, I would probably do a high rail uh, where, where the, the long axis rails are high up. That, that just makes for less moving mass on the gantry. Uh, I would go lighter weight on everything. Mm. Definitely not use the lathe bed as the gantry. That was a lot more trouble than it was worth. Uh, How wide is your gantry on the junkyard day drawing? Uh, I think travel is right around 26 and a half inches in oh, okay. X, and I think it's about it's about 50 in Y. Did you end up having to do like a floating support for the ball screw? It's probably not wide enough to... Well, maybe... The, I did sort of float it. I did uh, the like a rubber o-ring kind of deal so it's it's okay. held it's held rigidly enough to not whip but there's a little bit of cushion there for any kind of misalignment it's curious yeah i, I when i was in uh darmstadt i got to see like the can't remember if it, was the, it was the ml cube you know the big datron mm-hmm. router and that yeah that one has like some pretty long ball screws and like you can see this little thing like shuttle moving back and forth with the when the x-axis is moving and i was like what is you know i remember them telling me that it's like a support for the ball screen oh. it's so long it has to kind of yeah it has to kind of support it and it moves with the whole uh the xz assembly yeah yeah kinda, it, it or trails it i should say it's kind of always like it looks like it's kind of halfway between the uh the end of the of the gantry and the wherever that spindle happens to be but it's kind of interesting yeah, i've seen i wanted to really go look behind it and <laughs> see what was going on there but there, there's some interesting uh, ways of dealing with ball screw whip. They call it when it at, when it reaches the yeah. critical speed, it starts flinging around. Uh, yeah, uh, you can do a lot of a lot of companies. They'll tension the ball screw, pull it, help. Uh, that'll help keep it from whipping. Or even they have stationary screws where the nut moves on larger machines. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, very cool. I'm trying to think. So you've got uh, what's your next guitar project? And is it Ooh. depending on, or is that what the junkyard Daytron is going to be uh, primarily doing for you? Yeah, I'm wanting to get back to some of my own designs that are far. There, uh, a lot of the, the older replica guitars are insanely difficult in terms of that they just weren't DFM'd at all, or uh, you know, there's no thought given to how easy this is to make. So it can, it can just add so much work versus um, some of my own designs that I just kind of gear toward ease of production on a CNC machine, especially. Um, try to incorporate things like a good example is Grimsmo's Blade on the Norseman, how he left the, he leaves the course engraving as a feature. It looks, it looks really cool, but also it means you don't have to do a bunch of handwork. So try to get some features like that on my own designs when I can. Um, are, are you familiar with this maker or this guitar maker called Glenn Maxwell? No. Or Maxwell Custom? I don't think so. He's 
Oh, check him out if you get a chance. Like he he makes a guitar that with a design that I've never seen before. They're typically acoustic guitars, but he has the opening of the uh, the pocket on the side. It's a really unique. It's almost very contemporary oh, cool. in uh, in retrospect. But um, yeah, I was just wondering: is your design? Are you adding planning to add any different features or changes, or you're you're trying to stick to like a certain type of uh, style? It's or it's really hard to design a guitar a totally new design that doesn't look weird I've found. So yeah. I kind of take cues from some of the classic designs uh, and actually sort of combine a bunch of different features I like. Uh, but if just sitting down and trying to come up with a new body shape is, is really tough. I've found. All right. How, how about you guys? Uh, how about you guys? Yeah, we can do a quick yeah. shop shop update. Yeah. Why don't we start with uh, Winston? Winston. <laughs> I want to know about that light yeah. bar, the, the, the gantry. Yeah. Uh, the Skiloco light bar, not my CNC enclosure light bar. Oh, you have a CNC uh, enclosure light bar also? Well, so I, one of my projects was uh, just buying some high accuracy, color accuracy LEDs to make uh, some enclosure lighting. Just because oh, when okay. you're filming, um, if the... Video friendly. Yeah. yeah. If the color temperature isn't quite right, like the colors aren't going to be right. And also um, running... Uh, just my AC uh, light fixture from Costco, there was a lot of flicker. So mm-hmm. if you're not shooting at exactly 60 hertz, you see banding or flickering in the background, which was a huge pain in the butt for time lapses. Uh, so I did a project where I just, like, spent probably about 60, 70 bucks on just getting good quality LEDs, uh, machining my own little heat sink for the uh, LEDs and uh, sticking up on them up on flexible mounts um, in my enclosure. Uh, but um, what's more fun is the uh, the Skeloco. So the skeletonized Shapeoco. Um, on the M8 uh, machines, the Daytrons, they have a integrated cube. status light. Yeah, um, and I thought that was a pretty cool feature. And I, the more I thought about it, the more I realized that I could tap into the um, outputs on the controller board for the Shapeoco to recreate a similar effect. Um, if for no reason other than it would look cool. Um, so I uh, pulled out my, my soldering iron, my old uh, digital circuits knowledge, and I, I made my own um, basically a state machine. So based on whether or not there's 5 volts on certain pins, I can decide whether or not uh, to show red or to flash blue or to go green. Um, so all those uh, different aspects are all integrated into the Skeloco, and hopefully I'm thinking video maybe. Uh, end of June? We'll see. Um, but yeah, I've been having some fun. Just, just It's a purely vanity project just because I want to make a cool looking machine. Um, I don't know, maybe we could uh, get a, a Saunders shape Oko fixture plate on there too just for extra shininess. We'll see we'll how see. that goes. Yeah, that, that, would, that would reflect quite beautifully there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, not, nothing wrong with doing something just because it's cool though. Yeah. Inspired by Daytron. <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, <laughs> Sometimes, like, I just, I need to do a project that isn't, like, specifically for, like, a a task or, like, someone commissioned. I just, I need to do something that's therapeutic, that's sort of open-ended, that I can just, um, like, uh, not have to to focus on, like, um, meeting a budget or anything. It's just, like, when I was doing the soldering for the digital circuits, um, that's just something, like, you put on your headphones, you put away your phone, and just for the next hour or so, you're just, you're focused on... Uh, how to lay out your circuits and, and stuff like that. And uh, throughout this whole pandemic thing, like I've just been 
like once we started doing the live streams for Carbide 3D, it's been really hard to find like just downtime to focus on projects that aren't critical to either a video that I'm putting up for Carbide or preparing for the live stream. So the um, the LED lighting project was just a way for me to sort of unwind, relax, do something, make something in a way that was therapeutic. I think the word you're looking for is fun. <laughs> I, I wouldn't say fun. The the circuits thing is a little stressful. Um, I haven't done digital circuits since like 2008, 2009, and uh, I I don't I can't do circuit design. So it was all super like almost analog the way I was like laying out my uh, breadboard. <laughs> Cool. Yeah, it turned out really good though from that Instagram post that I saw. Oh, I just really cool. you wait. Um, I, so Carbide just released an accessory called the Bit Runner, which is basically a G-code controlled relay. So you can also have the spindle automatically turn on and off. So paired nice. with the lighting, um, it should be a pretty good effect. And I'm going to drop in a Dewalt router, which has uh, LED lights under it. So it should illuminate the workpiece as well. So I'm going to film a little promo of this thing in the dark. Very cool. Awesome. Nice. awesome. I was going to ask what that thing was. Yeah. So Chris, UMC 500 update, buddy. How's that yes, going? Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's, I mean, it's amazing, right? I mean, I'm coming from a Nomad and a Pocket NC to a UMC. The, the, just the fact of having a probe has changed my world. The tool changer, you know, like being able to set parameters and then basically hit one button and walk away and watch the machine as it probes my length and diameter of all my tools. And, you know, it's just like, it's, it's the dream, like to be able to have a, a real machine with all these good features and stuff. Um, and the, I ended up with the fifth axis work holding and that's been working amazing. Like I just pick up, uh, with the master palette, I pick up the XY and the diameter of the hole in the center. And I, I use the top surface of the rock lock paint for the Z and that's my G54 and I don't touch it for anything. I, I program everything off of that one point in my CAD CAM and I've never had to pick up a workpiece since. It's just everything just works. And I'm, I'm so amazed because now it's like the way it's intended is the way it works, right? It's not like, oh, this didn't work. I got to figure out a solution or something to kind of make it work or, or something like that. Or, um, yeah, it's been fun, man. I, I've been posting pictures. I made a motorcycle wheel face. Yeah, I saw that. Uh, for, it's like it's just a 12 inch wheel for like a smaller 125 cc bike, um, but that was really fun. I mean, you know, I wasn't even sure if it was my soft draw idea was going to work because the the blanks that they have right now are pre milled, so we're trying to just get through them before we make our own. But I need needed a way to locate so that the operator can load them in at the same position every time. So I just put a little dowel pin inside and basically. I got the tolerance right on because it's like a snap fit when it goes in and it, it felt really good when that happened. <laughs> um, yeah. So no, it's, it's, I mean, what can I say? It's freaking amazing. It's, it's a five axis. You can see at my fingertips. It's, it's awesome. It's the machine is so compact. I'm shocked. Like uh, when I flew to Ohio at the Saunders one and I was in front of the 750, I was a little scared. I was like, man, this is a really big machine because our space is a little bit smaller but uh, when it came, I was like, dude, this is smaller than like a or equivalent to like a VF2. It's just a little bit taller in height. Um, so totally manageable. And, you know, uh, from everything that I've done in the past two weeks and everything, my buddy and I were super stoked with how what it's doing. So we're already talking about getting a second machine, uh, a three axis, because we have a, we have a lot of flat work that we want to do. So um, once this thing's up and running good for the next couple months, I think we'll be 
calling her HFO again to get a second machine. Nice. Are, are you basically coming out there after work and setting up like the, whatever their next job is to do there, and then they go and run it, and then run it until they're ready for another part, or, or are they kind of it's, self-sufficient at this point? No, they, they've actually never ran a machine before, so while I'm setting it up and doing it, I'm also teaching them how to run the Haas, which is why I ended up with the Haas and not the Herco, because I know it's much easier to teach somebody to use a Haas machine than it would be something else, so... They're actually there with me and I'm teaching them how to like set tools and probe. And this is what work offset means. Here's what you need to do. And I'm, I'm teaching them to be an operator at this point, but the goal is to eventually teach them to be a machinist and a programmer in the future. So I'm kind of like, as I'm getting comfortable with the machine, I'm also bringing them with me and teaching them basically how to run it. Cause the, the, the goal is in six months, I don't even need to show up at the shop anymore. I just can send them files and they can run stuff. That that's kind of the goal, yeah. So then you'd be out there running. If you go out there, it'd be to run something for yourself, right? Something, for me, yeah, yeah. something fun. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, and, and you know, I have I have thousands of things that I yeah. want to make already. So or, or, I'm just waiting to get them settled. Or maybe run something for your podcast friends, uh, <laughs> co-hosts. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I, I leave it open if anybody, not just people here on the podcast, if they want to make something and they don't have access to machine, uh, just email me or message me and talk, let's talk about it. Like I have no problem helping out if I can, as long as I can fit it into the schedule and stuff. Um, whoever's listening or, or anybody, I, I want to kind of give back in that way if I can. Yeah. I'm, um, I kind of the same way. Like I, I want to finish this job up so I can start taking on like, it was weird. Cause I mean, I think some of the folks that listen to the podcast and follow my, my DM kind of know that I was going to wait a little while, you know, at least a month or two after I got the Neo before I started really, I, I wanted to be comfortable before I took commercial work. And, uh, so there wasn't really like, I wasn't even getting a lot of inquiries, um, from new, like new jobs. And then <laughs> literally like as soon as I committed to this project, which is, it's going to take a few weeks to make the parts because there's quite a few, um, like I keep getting all these, uh, like, uh, prototyping jobs, which is exactly what I want to be doing on the machine. Like perfect. Oh, like, Oh, that'd be perfect for the rotary. Yeah. I want to do those. <laughs> so I'm hoping that like, I want to get this done so I can start taking on some of that. Like to me, those are fun. Those are fun kind of work. And, uh, Eddie, but, I, uh, I will tell you that we had you selected for the, uh, the next person in the little blondie hacks, uh, machinist, uh, machinist relay before we knew that you had this huge job going on. So, uh, that was already in the works. Sorry. <laughs> I think I can squeeze it in there. Yeah. yeah. I think um, probably by the midweek this week, I'll hopefully be like kind of on a regular pace and getting them the parts at the time they need them. Nice. Um, or maybe a little ahead. Yeah. So uh, is that, can we talk about the part? Is that, that's the one you showed? I think that, is it the little mini uh, fixture plate? Yeah, we did, we did the mini fixture plate for it. Uh, there's not really okay. a, Blondie Hacks was one of the collaborators on uh, the Project Egress with us. And she started a just a passed around throw stuff on this thing and see what it ends up being kind of project. Uh, just okay. machine something and and send it along. I think uh, a bomb seventy nine and AVE had it before us. Uh, yeah, I saw that. I was super excited about that. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll definitely make time for that. That's not a problem. <laughs> Very cool. All right. Well, I know, Ed, you, uh, it's pretty late over there. You're on a different time zone. Um, 
So I think we probably can wrap it up. You guys uh, got any last minute, last questions for Ed before we uh, say goodnight? No, I think uh, we'll let you go. We can always bring you on for uh, episode 100. All right. Oh, yeah, definitely. Or soon. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I could have a thousand questions, but, you know, um, I'm pretty happy that you came on and got to hear your story and everything. That's always very cool. And thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, guys. I love the podcast. Thank you. Appreciate it. Good night, Ed. See you guys. Good night, guys. See you all.